you can say shit and it's not going to matter. Uh, your word is not worth anything anymore, really. So it's about what you can produce. So don't tell me what you can do. Show me. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome to Anyone Anywhere podcast. So today I have the pleasure to have with me Sean Smith. Let me do a quick intro about Sean. Sean is a Canadian award-winning entrepreneur, counselor, and psychotherapist, specializing in the emerging field of neurodiversity. Sean is also the founder and CEO of Don't Dis My Ability Consultation Service, an innovative, multifaceted company specializing in the emerging field of neurodiversity. How are you today, Sean? Good, how are you doing? Really nice. So let's start from the beginning. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself for the people that uh, are knowing you for the first time? Sure, so uh, my name is Sean Smith. I'm the founder and CEO of Don't Dis My Ability. Uh, by trade, I'm a counselor and psychotherapist and I, I specialize in this particular niche. So I guess I'll start off by kind of giving my definition of neurodiversity. Uh, it's a relatively new wor word in the world of psychology that represents a group of individuals with a disability label, but for whom the term disability doesn't quite fit because we don't feel disabled. Um, another way of kind of framing it is that our assets exceed any challenges we experience. And so for neurodiverse people, uh, a neurodiverse label uh, would typically fall under the category of kind of an invisible disability. So attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, autism spectrum disorder, learning disabilities, um, you know, anxiety and, and depression can also be neurodiverse labels. Um, and so really kind of understanding my own unique gifts that come by way of having ADHD and, and really challenging the status quo in the world of psychology that looks at a diagnosis as though or a broken part of a machine that once identified can be fixed. We're not machines or people. We don't need fixing. We need nurturing. So kind of what makes me different is that I specialize in this niche, but I also identify as being neurodiverse and use my own kind of personal experiences uh, to connect in a way with people that they haven't experienced before. Love it. And let's talk because uh, I was doing some of some research before. Can we talk a little bit about your childhood, how it was, sure. why you enter in this field? Because I think it's also important. Sure. Uh, my childhood, the best way for me to describe it, uh, it was hell. <laughs> when, I, when I look back now, you know, uh, a good way for me to frame it for people is that I felt like I was wrongfully imprisoned in my own mind. Um, academically, I, I struggled through every level of the public education system. High school was the worst. Uh, it took me four years to finish three years of high school, 32 attempts during 18 credits to graduate, including failing grade 10 math times. Um, I started playing football, uh, American football, my first year of grade 12. Um, by my second year, I was an all-star, and this was huge for me. I played hockey and golf all my life. I never got any better. I just got bigger. And now all of a sudden I started a new sport that I excelled at pretty quickly. And so as an all-star, I got recruiting packages from every major Canadian university with a football team. And it was such a high, but then such a low, because as I opened each one of them up, um, the minimum 
uh, academic requirement was like 60 to 70%. And my average was like 49%. And so I couldn't go to any of these schools, but a, a college uh, from Quebec started recruiting out of province for the first time in the school's history. And the head registrar for the school was also, also the defensive coordinator and they snuck me in. And so I moved to Montreal, um, took a, a two year program, but it took me three years to finish. I was still undiagnosed. I learned some coping strategies but really just still slipped through the cracks. And then uh, once I finished college, I, I was able to bring my grades up enough to attend university. And I just barely squeaked through earning a Bachelor of Arts degree with a 2.3 GPA. And then having a ton of life experience, um, and then at the age of 30, um, was diagnosed with ADHD and attentive type and started taking prescribed medication, which basically took my thought process from dial-up to fiber op. Uh, the pieces of the puzzle that were my life that never seemed to come together all of a sudden came together with with relative ease. And to give you an idea of how bad things were, like I tied my shoes the wrong way before I tied them the right way every time. Um, I couldn't remember simple or basic instructions. Like if I was driving and I needed to stop for directions, um, I would intentionally try to remember steps one and two, because if I tried to remember steps one through four, they'd all get jumbled up in my head. Um, so understanding that things work differently in my head now, and I literally felt the tingling in my brain. Um, you know, it was like the, this immense cloud that I lived in of fog all of a sudden dissipated and all the things that seemed to have been lost in that fog all of a sudden were, were accessible to my, my brain. And so I went back to upgrade as a mature student, taking five classes, earned a new and then in 2010, I was accepted to the Master's of Education and Counseling Psychology program at the University of New Brunswick on academic probation and graduated a year later at the top of my class. So a very unique lens through which to help people. And that includes, you know, when I say fast forward, I'm kind of skipping over a lot of the different jobs that I've had that have kind of helped me become the person I am. I've had 21 different jobs. Uh, so drawing from a lot of those different experiences and what I've learned, what I liked, what I didn't like have kind of helped shape who I am and, and identify and solidify kind of my core values, uh, which, you know, I'm sure as you know, once you've identified those, the, the mission kind of becomes much clearer. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And it was that moment uh, when you start uh, to take medication that make the change. Oh, it was, it, it was surreal. Um, you know, the, one of the ways that I describe it is that if you can imagine, um, there's, there's a couple of different examples that I give people. So one of them is if you can imagine an old antique truck that you find in an old abandoned barn somewhere mm -hmm. and you decide that you want to restore it and you want to fix it up. So first thing you do is you pop the hood, you, uh, you swap out the spark plug, you change the oil, and then you go to, to turn the engine on. And when you turn that engine on, you can see the flakes of rust start to chip off, start to chip and fall off. Mm -hmm. That's what happened in my head. Another way of describing it is that if you can imagine uh, an old house with an attic and you, you go up into the attic and there's one light in the middle of the room and, and you, you pull the switch, you can only see what that light will show you. And so essentially what medication did for me uh, was put lights in every corner. So that stuff was always there. It was always there in the attic, but I mm -hmm. couldn't see it. So all of a sudden, the medication gave me kind of different switches to turn on these lights to access all this information that was always there. I just wasn't able to access it. And so all of a sudden, it came flooding to the forefront. Um, and all these things that, you know, I, 
for, for example, when I played hockey as a kid, my dad would always joke and say that I was the first one in the, the locker room, but the last one on the ice. Uh, and I realize now that what I was, the reason why that was is because I was observing people. I was taking everything in as a kid. I didn't know that and I didn't recognize it. I didn't know how that would serve me later. But now one of my gifts that comes by way of having ADHD is that within moments of meeting someone or observing them, I can tell how authentic and genuine they are. Uh, and this is because of the, the time that my parents would have described me as being a procrastinator or mm. um, you know, having my head in the clouds. But in reality, what I was doing was observing people, which now helps me as uh, a counselor and psychotherapist and also as an entrepreneur and other aspects of my life, including my, my personal life. I love it. And, and there is some question that, that it comes to my mind at the, this moment. If somebody is listening to this now and uh, is identifying with some of the things that you, you, you maybe some of the symptoms, which is the, the advice you, that you will give to them? Uh, I spent a long, a lot of my life wondering what was wrong with me only to stumble into what was right about me. So I guess my message would be that life doesn't necessarily have to be that hard. You know, if you, if you suspect that you have a learning disability or ADHD or you're on the autism spectrum, go and get yourself assessed. You'll learn a lot about yourself through the process. Um, but when, when somebody discloses to me that they, they have ADHD or, you know, they have autism or whatever it is, the first thing I say to them is welcome to the world of the uniquely gifted, right? Everyone else is focused on our perceived deficits. And as a, a child growing up, I understand why my parents did the things that they did. I also now know why none of them could have worked. And I'm able to, to share those with other parents and, and individuals and they're able to relate and kind of change the dynamic within the family. Um, but really the, it's the, the unknowing part and, and wondering why we don't fit into this world. And I, I use the analogy of the, the square peg in the round hole. Okay. So individuals with disabilities are the square peg. Society is the round hole. Historically, literally since the beginning of time, we have put all our energy, time and resources in trying to shift, contort, manipulate and change that square peg. That peg is beautiful. It's not going anywhere. So my work, as I describe it, is expanding that hole and showing people that although I may have ADHD, that doesn't mean I'm less than. It actually, in a lot of cases, means that I'm more than. But it's trying to break free from even from experts. Like when I went back to do my master's degree, uh, I sat down with uh, the executive director of our student accessibility center uh, to talk about you know what accommodations I might need and. And uh, I sat down and I remember her telling me not to expect to get the same grades as my peers. And I remember, like, I literally got up and said, screw you. And I walked out of the office, like, who are you to tell me what I can't do because of a label that I have, right? So rather than accept the, the label and the perceived limitations that come with it, I choose to push the boundaries. Um, you know, I, yes, I do have my challenges, but there are some things that I am exceptional at. And so rather than focus on the things that I'm not good at, I've created a business where I choose to focus on my strengths um, and use that as my business model. And I, first, I love the idea, like focus on your strengths and not, and, and that can take, it's, I think it's a, it's a general advice. Like I should focus on my strengths and not on something that I'm weak. And a question that comes to me too, 
uh, it's why you say, why you consider the people with, let's call it disabilities, gifted and not broken. Can you explain me a little bit more? Well, a lot of this is based on my own experience. I don't, I don't, I don't feel broken. Uh, I would say that there was a, a time when I did, and that was when I didn't know that I had a, a disability or a diagnosis. Um, but when, when I started taking medication, there were certain things that I could do that I recognize. Uh, so one, one example would be that um, I can literally read between the lines. Like I, I learn more from the absence of information than I do by what's provided. So you, you could show me a paragraph and I could tell you exactly what they're not saying and what they're saying by what they're not saying. And so I can do this with people. And, and so one of the, the first job I had after my master's degree was working for a nonprofit organization, uh, writing proposals for people with disabilities to get supports through our government. And um, I, I didn't know this until you know, I, I was just about to leave that job, um, but that was actually one of my gifts. Uh, the, our government started streaming all of their complex cases to me because I could do them much better than their social workers who were making double or triple what I was. And the government actually took the model that I created and implemented it internally for the social workers to use with their clients. So this was kind of like one of my first inklings of, okay, I'm doing next level shit here. Um, and, and it's being recognized. So this, this is very cool. And so part of, part of what I would really like for people to understand is that like, I'm, I'm still coming into my gifts. Like it's not something that you, you stumble upon. You're like, okay, it's, it's a one and done kind of thing. You can have more than one gift. Like I, recognizing a big part of what I do really is, is trying to help people map out their thought process so I can get an understanding of how they process information. And once, once I can do that, then we can try and figure out how to move forward. So for me, I'm the way that I process information. I tell people like, I don't need you to tell me something. I need you to show me if, if you want to tell me how to do something that's for your benefit, not for mine. Um, so the way that I process things, the way that I learn is by watching videos and by trying. So recognizing that that's my strength, that's how I teach myself how to do new things. Uh, I'm also an amateur chef and chocolatier. Um, and this is all stuff that I, I learned through watching videos and trial and error. Um, I think one of the, the most viewed um, YouTube clips that I have is where I, I kind of talk about how I used to get stuck in things and I was cooking and I made caramel. Right. And I think this, this kind of speaks to your original question of, you know, I used to get stuck. So I was making caramel. I wanted to make caramel candies and it, it didn't turn out. It was too soft. And so normally I would get frustrated and I would get stuck, but because I have this new way of thinking, I, I thought, okay, just because it didn't turn out the way that I wanted to, doesn't mean that it's garbage and I need to throw it out. It's still good. I just need to find something else to do with it. So I ended up making um, coconut bars with caramel and, and almonds on it. And then I dipped them in dark chocolate, right? So I, I, I guess the bigger picture is I want people to see that just because you have lemonade doesn't mean that you exclusively have to make lemonade or just because you have lemons doesn't mean that you only can make lemonade. You can make lemon candy. You can make lemon pie. You can do all of these types of things. But our, our focus has been on, no, you need to do this one thing. Why? Right? So because I have different strengths and interests, I intentionally chunk up my days and my weeks so that I get to do a lot of different. If I'm stuck doing the same thing all day, every day, I get bored and then I get resentful and I can't be there anymore. 
Man, I love it. I love it. I have a couple of questions. Uh, you were talking before about core values. First of all, what, why do you think core values are important? And what are your core values? Well, I think core values are, are important because it's, for me especially, it's important to identify exactly what I am, but also exactly what I'm not. Um, so that there's no confusion. I try to be very transparent about everything that I do. My wife would, uh, would describe me as honest to a fault. Um, so just, just as an example, like if this interview, if, if we didn't click, like rather than waste my time and your time, I would just end it. Like, mm -hmm. I, I think that a lot of us mask and pretend to be someone we're not to try and fit into certain groups or in, you know, to get in with certain people in a certain way. Um, I'm the same person at home as I am at work. There's only one of me. Um, it takes too much energy for me to try and, and be someone else that I think somebody else wants me to be. So I think as I've matured, I, I've recognized that um, it's okay that people don't like me. And it's okay if I don't like people. The thing is that we have a mutual respect, right? Um, not everybody's going to like me. Not everybody's going to get what I do. And that's okay. But there was a time, and I think a lot of people still feel this way, of, you know, they, they kind of stew and, and wonder and get stuck on what is it that, that they did that this person doesn't like them. Ultimately, it doesn't matter, right? It's, there's not something that you can necessarily, necessarily say or do that's going to change that person's opinion of you. Um, you just need to make sure that you keep doing what it is you want to do. So my, my core values are really, you know, honesty, integrity, um, strong work ethic. Uh, but above, above all, really being genuine and, and authentic. Uh, so when I, when I sense that the person I'm speaking with is not being genuine or not being authentic, that conversation is going to be very short. Love it. Love it. Let's, let's take it long. I hope so. <laughs> so <laughs> well, we're still, we're still here. So that's exactly. So, and let me now ask, how did you discover your core values? How, how it was the moment? Uh, um, you know, I don't know that the, there wasn't necessarily one, one particular, uh, well, I would say with the honesty piece, there, there's one particular moment. Um, I became the world's best worst liar um, because I did so poorly in school. Um, my parents increasingly got frustrated with my poor academic performance. And I mean, they had, like I had to spend a lot of time trying to do homework, a lot of time with tutors, but none of them worked. And I understand now why they didn't, but that was a lot of time spent doing that. And so I really learned to lie to my parents a lot because I knew I was going to get in trouble for school. So I just lied to try and delay the inevitable. The problem was I told so many lies and then it, it kind of, I just started lying about everything and uh, it caught up with me and I got in trouble and I lost a lot of privileges. And, and, and so I really kind of learned that, uh, even though I would still get in trouble for being honest, I would get in less trouble than I did if I lied. And so that, that really was uh, a big one for me. Um, but I think, you know, in a roundabout way, I kind of compare this to, um, you know, how people think about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, a lot of people think that there's one incident that, that causes uh, PTSD. It, it's not. Um, when you think of a, a, a cup of water that's almost full to the top, the, the incident that people refer to is the, the dump into the glass where it ends up overflowing. But had it not been that full to begin with, 
it wouldn't have gotten that high, right? So for people with ADHD and, and other invisible disabilities, uh, PTSD still happens, but it's almost like it's, it's a thousand, like the death of a thousand cuts, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're small, but they still happen and they compound on top of each other. Uh, and so each one of those kind of situations or scenarios, especially in looking at like the 21 different jobs that I've had and being able to reflect and look at, you know, what is it that I liked about that job? What was it that I didn't, what did I take away from this? Hmm. Um, that's really how I developed a lot of my core values because the best way to get out of a situation that, that you're in is to kind of challenge your own way of thinking, um, and, and how people treat you. You know, there was one job I worked at where, um, our boss belittled everybody who would call you dumb and stupid. Okay. That's, this sucks. I don't want to work for this guy. This isn't a job that I want. And I, and I know how people now react, um, and how they feel in the workplace when an employer treats people like that. Right. I've been in other, other situations where, you know, my, my work and my job was very supported and I have great relationships with people, but it's, it's those different experiences that allow us to take something away from it and, and move on and utilize that. But it really, and I can say like, I've never been fired from a job. Um, I've been laid off a bunch of times, uh, through no fault of my own, but, you know, I like to, to joke that my company has done something that no other company has been able to do since 2002, which is keep me employed for longer than 18 consecutive months at a time. So I really challenge people, you know, instead of waiting for an opportunity to go out and create your own, uh, um, that, that really is one way to find a lot of meaning. And, and you'll, it, it also forces you to understand, get a really good understanding of what your core values are. And so for me, and, and like I break a lot of business models, because of my core values, um, I'm not going to kiss a potential customer's ass. Hmm. That that's just not going to happen. Um, I'm also very uh, um, selective about who I take on. If I don't feel like it's a good fit for me, it could fit for me, I can't see them. Hmm. So it it really helps me to kind of hone in on the the type of people that I want to help as opposed to just allowing anybody who has money to walk through my door. Um, it just, I can't do that. No, no, I, I feel, I feel this in this side of the, of, of the ocean. I can feel that it's, it's, yeah, it's, it seems something that is very strong in you. And you are talking about gifts. How can we discover our gifts? Uh, the, the, well, the best thing to do is to not ask parents, friends, or family members, um, because they may tell you what they think you want to hear. Um, the best thing to do is to, to get outside of your, your comfort zone and to be in a, in a place where people don't really know you and you get to kind of show off what you do. And based on their reaction, you'll, you'll get a pretty good idea if you're onto something or if you're not. Um, and it, and it, you know, it can be validating. It, it could also um, be crushing. You know, it just, it depends on the person, but really it's for, for me, it's trying to distinguish between, is this a gift or is it a hobby? Hmm. If it's a gift, it's something that when you're in the zone, no one can touch you. Right. And when I look at it from an employment perspective, that person finding a job is not going to be that difficult. Um, and so if it's somebody's hobby, it's not to say that that won't lead to a job. It means that they're going to have to put more work into it than somebody else who might be considered a, a natural. 
And so one of the ways that I kind of assess this is that when, uh, so an example would be a, a young man that, that I was working with who um, was really into cybersecurity. Um, I'm, I love technology, but that's outside of my wheelhouse. So I, I have an acquaintance who has his PhD in computer science. And so I set up a meeting between the three of us so that he could assess my client's competency level in this particular field. And basically after an hour long meeting, he confirmed that this kid is a genius. And by the time he's 20, he'll be making a quarter of a million dollars a year. So for me, it's, it's about using my network of people who uh, kind of know my body of work and respect who I am and what I do. And also know that when, when I pick up the phone or I send them a message, um, they get excited because they know that I'm not calling them for nothing. Hmm. They know that I found something that, that they're probably going to be very interested in helping me explore. So they also get excited. I love it. I love it. And, and it comes now with a question that what do you think it's your purpose in life? Uh, my purpose man, is to, to help others. Like I, I, I literally get high from helping other people. And I, I think that when you're, what you do uh, is intrinsically good in nature, right? Then I, I think you experience that. And, and another way to, to kind of package this, when I, when I went to do my master's degree, um, one of my profs came up with this, this scenario that I just thought was great. You know, imagine it's the, the holiday season and you're going to a busy shopping center. Mm. And, you know, so there's, there's lots of people and you open the door and you hold it open for the person behind you. Are you holding it open because you expect to hear a thank you from them or are you opening because, opening it for them because it makes you feel good to do something nice for somebody else? If you're opening the door because you're expecting to hear a thank you, that's for all the wrong reasons, right? When, when you're doing it because it makes you feel good because you know that you did something nice regardless of how that person interprets it, then that's, that's the, the kind of fuel for our souls that we need to keep feeding ourselves, you know, and, and a lot of this stuff, I mean, I'll admit, like I, I've come to realize that um, this stuff that I do is for me. Hmm. It just helps everybody else. So I believe that selfishness can also lead to selflessness. And I have a great example of this. When I was at a, a conference, a counseling conference, uh, I also experienced social anxiety. And I know enough about myself now that it's not actually me, um, it's everybody else. I don't, like I mentioned, I would like to have bullshit conversations with bullshit people. Hmm. And when you get into a big crowd, that's almost inevitable. So one of my coping strategies is to keep busy. And so during the conference, like it didn't matter that there was staff there, like people working from the hotel. I stacked chairs. I got tables out. I volunteered to drive people around. Whenever there's a, an opportunity for our mind to worry or wonder, it hmm. will go there. So I intentionally kept myself busy for me, but helping other people so that I could keep and at the end of the conference to my surprise they they handed out an award uh, for the first time in the organization's history uh to a volunteer who who um showed it uh what, what was the wording that they used uh exceptional volunteerism uh they gave an award <laughs> and, and they gave it to me mm -hmm. like it was just you know what i mean so like it's self self selfishness can lead to selflessness so when what you're doing is helping other people but it's also helping you then the, the ripple effect of that will go on and you may not experience it and, and it is validating but it goes back to you know your core beliefs your core values of you know doing things because it makes you feel good 
and, and if it helps other people, that's just the icing on the cake, right? Completely, man. I love it. And I love the idea. Keep your mind occupied. Don't like, like, and also like, like you say, action, action, do something. And, and, and you were talking about awards. Let's talk a little bit about your entrepreneur awards. Sure. How it was that. Can you tell me a little bit about? Uh, yeah, man, it was, I just got goosebumps. Uh, it was, it was, it was awesome. I mean, um, I was hesitant to get involved with the startup community because I, I always thought that, you know, you, you needed a, a tangible product or an app or some form of technology. Uh, as a counselor and psychotherapist, I didn't really see how I fit in. But then when uh, I joined uh, an accelerator uh, for social entrepreneurs, it was so odd how it kind of all of a sudden felt like I was at home. I mean, I had been, you know, I had been involved in, you know, uh, career development in the career development field counseling and psychotherapy field, but nothing felt like this did. And I, I had entrepreneurs all of a sudden flocking to me and kind of sharing their story and asking for insight. And then I just, I had this epiphany of, you know, there are probably more entrepreneurs who are diagnosed or undiagnosed with some form of ADHD than there are without, but yet it's not talked about. And so I've kind of been trying to, to be that voice, but also again, in, in, um, you know, the, the um, selfishness leading to selflessness. Like I started um, being a, a mentee in the startup community. So I would go meet with different mentors uh, um, to, to try and see how they could help me. And then it got to a point where I thought, okay, I have more to contribute than I, than maybe I do to learn right now. So then I became a mentor and I started mentoring all these different um, businesses and they would go back to kind of their hub and, and there was a big buzz about, you know, how I was helping all these different businesses and, and, you know, just coming up with ideas that they'd never thought of one after another. And so word kind of got back and the next thing I know, uh, I was nominated for the uh, Startup Canada Resilient Entrepreneur Award, which is uh, for an entrepreneur with a disability who's made a significant impact in, in the startup world. And so it was, it was an amazing experience, man, that kind of help solidify and propel me in, in the, the startup world. And now, um, you know, occasionally I, I get paid to speak at, at different startup conferences. Um, and I, I choose to sp sp sorry, specifically kind of hone in, in, in the mental health area, um, around entrepreneurship, because there is a, no one ever said being awesome would be easy. It, it's not, there, there's a, a mental toll that we pay for operating at the level that we do. Right. And so this, this is where the anxiety and, and depression comes in. That is the invisible disability that nobody sees, but everybody experiences more so entrepreneurs. So kind of focusing on that aspect and sharing a lot of my own experiences with people to kind of normalize and reduce the stigma around uh, mental health and startups. I love it. Love it. And let's go a little bit about startups and business. Some tips or advice that you want to share with business in this in these current uh, times with COVID, how can they adapt themselves? Well, I one of the ways that I kind of bring it back to people is to try and think of low risk maximum reward. What is it that you have that costs the least amount to make um, or the least amount of to produce, 
um, and not only cost, but also in your time and, and emotional and physical energy that will yield the most um, reward, whether that be financial or personal. That's where, so sometimes you need to scale back to look at what is your most viable product and maybe to focus on that and, and kind of things down and focus more on the things that either bring you money or joy. Hmm. Love it, love it, love it. And the low risk, high reward. I, I, love, I love that idea. And let's go. I'm really curious. Uh, why the name Don't This My Ability? <laughs> um, you know what? When, uh, when I was first diagnosed, um, I was working at a residential treatment facility for at-risk youth in, in the Northwest Tor Territories, which is a very isolated, cold place. And um, it was a nine bed facility. And one of the, the kids had uh, gone AWOL and they just came back. And when that happens, a staff member has to be outside their door with the door open to keep eyes on them to make sure that they're safe and they don't take off again. And uh, that night it was, it was my turn to, to sit out there. And I just, my brain, my thoughts just started flowing in ways that they'd never kind of flowed before. And so I had this beat in my head um, from, uh, an Eminem song. And, uh, I just started writing and don't diss my ability was the first thing that came out. And then I, I made a, a don't diss my ability rap that kind of turned into a poem. Um, and then it, that just kind of stuck with me. And then a few years later, when I started my own business, I just was like, you know what? I, I'm an individual who self identifies as having a disability. I look at it differently. And this was just very, very catchy. So I stuck with it, even though when I shared it with people uh, that I worked with in, a non in the nonprofit sector, disability nonprofit sector, uh, mm -hmm. they told me nobody would take me seriously. Um, no one that would accept the name. Uh, and I just, you know what, as somebody without a disability working for a disability organization, respectfully, I disagree. So mm -hmm. I, I just kept at it. Uh, and now it's become a, a, an international brand that's recognized. Man, I love the idea. Do you want to share a little bit about uh, of the poem? Uh, I don't. I don't have it with you me don't right have now. It? Uh, <laughs> but it it kind of it just it, it kind of came out about you know how for most of my life I I, I failed everything and and now I'm not right. So it was kind of like the a very quick journey of you know how how I went through. You know, nobody can go from A to C without going through B. I'm at a point now where, like, I, I wouldn't wish my experiences on my worst enemy, but I also wouldn't trade them for the world because they, they've helped shape the person that I am now. And so when I look back, I'm, you know, again, I'm at the age and the maturity where I can look back and see how each one of those jobs, each, you know, each meaningful relationship I had, the chance that somebody gave me has led to the opportunity that I have to help other people now. So I also make a point of going back and, and thanking those people and let them know, you know, this is the impact that you had on me. If this hadn't happened, then that wouldn't have happened. And then this wouldn't have happened. And I wouldn't be where I am now. So I really try, you know, and one example is, you know, the, the, the coach who snuck me into college, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be where I'm at now. And I'm one of their success stories. So I make a point of, of going back and, and sharing things with them as they happen uh, because I'm honored to be one of their success stories and they're, they're honored um, that I've become the person that I am and, and, you know, furthers their belief in, in taking chances on people because they took a lot of chances on people. 
Um, when I, when they snuck me in, I wasn't the only one. Um, but out of probably over the, the three years that I was there, they probably brought in 40 to 50 people out of province. And there were only two of us that actually finished and graduated. So, you know, the, the resilience piece, I think is something that kind of gets overlooked is that, you know, and, and I will say if not for the, the ignorance that I had, I don't think I would have been as resilient as I was because I didn't really see any other option than to try. Even if I failed, I, I you know, there, there was no real option to do anything other than go to school or work. So the thought of doing what I had been doing for the rest of my life, really, you know, I was doing landscaping. That's not, I didn't want to do that um, <laughs> at all. And you know, that was something I did in, in high school and college to, to earn money for college and university during the summers. So it just, yeah. I love it. And how it comes to that moment that you see your experience as a observer and you can think to them. And for some of the people that are, maybe are seeing the, 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 the experience in the past in the negative way, which, which advice did you give them to, to look at in life, maybe in the positive way, in the bright side, as you want to call it? Sure. Well, I guess I'll start by saying that it's, it's, it's hard, man. I mean, most, most of my, um, you know, life living with my parents, um, I thought I was dumb and stupid and, and, you know, so in, and in my work, like I would say conservative, conservatively, um, a lot of these kids days, probably 75 to 90% of their day consists of being told that what they're doing is wrong by the people who are closest to them. So when that becomes your surrounding, the narrative that we have internally, that dialogue also starts to become negative. So when you're surrounded by negativity, you, you, you will inherently become negative. It's, it's, so for me, it was kind of branching out and going out and meeting other people, developing other relationships. Um, you know, again, just like if you were trying to find out if, if you have a gift or a hobby, the best thing to do is to take yourself out of that environment and put yourself in a completely different environment to kind of test that out. It's really the, the, the same experience and, and kind of learning from each one of those. I, I like to create, um, you know, each conversation to me is an opportunity for impact, right? So it, it's trying to create that impact in meaningful conversations. Um, and, you know, you're likely not going to have those with your family. Um, they might be the same variation of a conversation you've already had, but until you go out and you kind of express what your views are, um, who you are, what your values, your goals, all those things are, you're not going to find like-minded people, right? So, you know, again, honing that and understanding who you are will attract you towards like-minded people instead of having a lot of other people in your life who maybe don't fill any, any particular need that you have. Um, they're just there. Mm, completely. And yeah, if you just chew your shell, like you are saying, uh, the people will not know you, the, the, the true self that you are. And if you want to find people like you, you should show the true self, like you were saying. And there is one word that you were talking about resilience. How important is resilience for you? 
Oh, it's, I mean, it, it's, uh, when we talk about core values, that that's another one really is, is resilience and, and understanding that, um, you know, life isn't easy. And I think I mentioned this before, like no one ever said being awesome would be easy, right? There is a mental toll for operating at the level that we do. If someone thinks that, um, you know, their goals are going to be handed to them, they're going to be sorely mistaken and it's, it's going to be a harsh reality for them to face. Right. So as, as hard as it is, you know, especially as, as a, as a parent, you know, to watch our kids fail and to see them go through that, hmm. they have to do that. Right. And, and again, I use myself as an example. Um, I have two kids when, when my son was four, uh, I was a very anxious parent and, um, you know, he would be on the swings and, and I would be right behind him. And my wife would say like, Sean, you, you need to back up. Like you got, you got to give him some space. And if he started to fall, I'd get very anxious and I would like go to catch him, even though he didn't need to be caught. And so it took me a, a while to kind of back off and understand that as much as I don't want him to fall, as much as I don't want him to get hurt, hmm. it has to happen. The, the only way he's going to learn to be safer on the swing is to fall and, and maybe to keep falling. And, and that's the best way for me to teach him. It's not standing there behind him. It's giving him the space to make his own mistakes and to be there to, to nurture him if he needs it when he falls off to help, to help him get back on. And I love it. I love it. And uh, it comes a question. Resilience, it's something that is in you since, since you remember you as a person or is something that you develop? Uh, I think it's something that you, you develop, but I, I think that also when, when kids are younger, I think resilience is a word that you learn as, as uh, a teenager or an adolescent, or maybe not, you don't even really recognize what it is or, or how you are resilient until you get to a certain place in life. Um, because it, it means that you've gone through some shit, you know, it's, it's resilient people aren't people who have had the red carpet pulled, you know, mapped out for them it's, it's people who have gone through different difficult situations who have and grow as a person um you know and it's not always positive sometimes a negative right but sometimes the negative choices we have to make are still the best out of the two negative choices you still have to make them you still have to go through them you still have to learn and grow it can be easy to get stuck in that period in time um, but really the goal is to, to keep trying. It's not about trying one thing and getting it right. It's about trying a lot of different things to see if you can find the, the kind of secret recipe that works for you right now, but is also going to change again. Um, so the second that you get comfortable in something, that means it's, it's probably time to change. Okay. And I, and I also know too, like for myself, um, I rarely make the same mistake twice. And I think as men, uh, especially in, in North America, we're, we're kind of conditioned at an early age not to show any sign of perceived weakness. So uh, crying um, or, or showing your emotions or, or affection is perceived as a sign of weakness. Um, I, I retaught myself how to cry as an adult. Um, you know, and again, another story I'll share. My, my son um, got into an argument with his cousin and um, he went into his room and he was crying. He was probably five or six at the time. And um, my brother-in-law went in and he, he's very different. He is kind of a macho approach to, to parenting. And he said, you know, boys don't cry, sissies cry. And I said, no, 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 get out. And so I went and I talked to my son, I laid down with him and I cried with him. And uh, he, I noticed that he was trying not to cry. And I asked him, it just kind of came to me, you know, like, 
would you fight that hard to hold back a smile or laugh? And he said, no. And I said, then why would you do that with your tears? And so at that moment, crying became a, a mindfulness exercise for me where now if I cry, uh, I'll actually let the tears run down my cheek into my beard where it usually tickles a little. Uh, but I intentionally, I don't wipe them away because to me, wiping away the tears is a way of dismissing the emotion that I'm feeling. So I, I really will kind of, I, I really learned something from each experience, man, to, to take away from. And I think a big part of that is, is self-reflection and, and being vulnerable. And so as I learned that vulnerability was actually an asset and not a deficit, it allowed me to be more vulnerable with myself, with other people, which really is, is another way of connecting, right? When someone is not uh, willing to, to show their vulnerability. And I think this is something that I especially challenge as a, as a counselor and psychotherapist, right? If someone comes into my office and I expect them to share everything with me, but I'm not willing to share a part of myself with them, hmm. how much of a relationship can we actually have? We can't, it's not right? True. So I think it's, it's, it's an integral part of um, connecting with people and sharing the human experience so that everybody can learn and, and grow from it. It, it. No, it's so true. And, it comes for me with that question that is uh, uh, it, that moment, do you think that being a parent uh, give you that superpower of learning about being vulnerable? Yes, but uh, so in one of the 21 jobs that I had, so my wife and I got married, um, we'd been married for I think six months and then we, we got a job working together in the United States as therapeutic foster parents for at-risk youth. So while most newlyweds are busy picking out patio furniture and buying a new house, we moved to a foreign country and had two foster kids with, uh, with, some, with behavioral issues. Um, so they really, working in that experience, taught me how to be a, a parent before I had my own kids. Um, so really it, and the, the training that I got from that job, I is still the kind of the foundation of what I use today. And so I recognize that with these kids and trying to connect with these kids and, and you have to remember, I mean, a lot of these kids had families. So what does it say that the person who is paid to live with them and care for them takes better care than the, the people who are related through blood, right? What kind of a message does, does that send? So in order for me to be real and genuine and authentic, it meant that when I screwed up, I had to own it. I, I had to be a model of positive behavior for these kids. If they messed up and the expectation was that they then had to take responsibility, how could I, as an adult, not do the same thing to reinforce that positive behavior? So there was a lot of me being vulnerable and, and kind of, you know, just being open and, and honest because Again, when we talk about gift, these kids were extremely resilient. They were also extremely resourceful in getting their needs met, often in socially inappropriate ways. So when it came time to kind of connect with them in, in a real way, um, when, when things were not good, that's when the bond would get created. It was just in that moment being as real as, as real could be. And, and for me, sometimes, like, I, I don't know if you have the, uh, you know, use the explicit logo and I, I won't swear, but like, for me, when I, when I say the F word um, with a, a kid in a really difficult situation, they're like, okay, this, this guy kind of gets it. 
Whereas if, if someone is very prim and proper, they're you know they're going to be more conservative. They're going to be seen as talking at the person, not talking to them. And so a big part of what I do and why I love that particular job was that I got to wear shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt to work every day, right? And so I, I still kind of carry that over in the work that I do now. Um, in the summertime, like I'll, I'll wear a t-shirt, shorts and a flip-flop to my sessions. And I think one of the things that we've done inadvertently is created a, a hierarchy based on how we dress. You know, a lot of these kids, when if I dress the way that a normal, normal counselor is supposed to dress, and you think about the type of people that have marginalized these individuals, they're all people who dress a certain way. And I don't want to put myself in that category by default just because I dress a certain way. So I don't put myself above or below anyone. I'm just who I am. This, this is how I dress. If somebody shows up to my office in a suit and tie, that's, that's great for them. I'm, I'm not going to adapt who I am to suit their need that makes them feel more comfortable. And if somebody comes to my office and they say, you know what? I don't think you dress professionally. I'd be more comfortable if you wore, you know, pants. And I say that that's great. You should probably go find somebody else. No. And for me, what I see, and it's being real to yourself. It's the way that I, I can describe you, you know, like you, you just like, you are real to yourself. If you feel comfortable saying the F word, it's because it's in you. Maybe somebody cons conservative try to say it, it will sound fake, gonna, you know? Yeah, it's not going to come out right. Exactly. Just I think it's, it's what I can take, like it's being real to, to yourself. And let's go. How do you describe your mindset? Um, my mindset. Um, really un understanding that it, it's almost in a way easier for me to to draw, like when, when you think of a, a line as kind of baseline and, and how um, people who are not neurodiverse kind of reflect or react to different situations, it's almost like the, the heart monitor that goes up and down, right? Hmm. For people who are neurodiverse, the highs are higher and the lows are lower. Okay. So literally that, you know, when I say I get high from my work every day, like when I have a positive experience, like it, it literally gets me high. Now the, the low part is the, the part you know, when negative things happen, it can sink us to the depths of depression that only another entrepreneur or somebody in our field can truly relate to. And that's what most people don't understand. They'll see the highs and they'll be the first to congratulate us on our success. But a lot of entrepreneurs don't share that low. Uh, so I, I actually make a point of doing that. Like I've talked about before, where, you know, my wife was working three jobs. I'm trying to make my business go. I had no idea when I was going to get paid again. So I took the money that we did have for groceries. I went to Costco. I bought as many big giant cans of tomatoes as I could. I made like 20 jars of pasta sauce and froze them. Cause I didn't, I didn't know when I was going to get paid again. Right. I have pictures of, you know, problems I've had with my house where me and my buddy are literally digging out my well. We're six feet in the dirt on a rainy day covered in mud. And because my, there was a, a rock in the hose of my well and we had no water coming in my house. So like, you know, I think it's just as important to, sh you know, it, it's a lot more than headshots and one liners, right? Th those, those are the things that, that people might see and, and kind of recognize and, and aspire to be, but you don't get there without digging in the shit. Like you, it's just, there's no way. And if somebody does get there without having to do this, they'll get there without any respect from me. 
because anybody who's just handed something and hasn't had to work for it. And, I, and when I say work, I mean, go through those experiences that actually make you truly resilient. Hmm. You're, you, you can be a, you know, you can be the, think you're the greatest entrepreneur, but unless you have that, that experience where you had to develop and build that resiliency, you're just, you're not going to get it's kind of in a way I think how we earn our, our stripes our invisible stripes is by you know how many failures have you gone through to reach that one success I love that I love it I, I love it and, and for me it's it's exactly like you were saying and tell me what are some of the tools that uh, you use uh, when you were in your beginning of your entrepreneur journey and uh some of the tools um well they, they've kind of evolved so i think i'll i'll really kind of share more where i am now because i i tried a lot um i think one of the challenges of you know having adhd or or being neurodiverse is that we're we kind of look for one system that can do everything and i spent a lot of time and energy on different systems but none, none of them really did everything that I wanted them to do. So rather than kind of spin my wheels and waste time um, on something that wasn't built for me, um, I just started using different parts of things to incorporate into my own system. So part of that is that I use all Apple products. Um, I use iCal. I, you know, if I don't write it down, it doesn't happen. So I really try to be diligent about um, keeping up to date in my calendar. Uh, setting notifications and alerts so that I know when when meetings are when I have reports that are due to write um, make sure that I give myself enough time to get set up for travel or or zoom to get my light set up my microphone and, and all those things um, but you know a lot of hacks of reading you know I, I used to tell people that uh, I couldn't read or that I didn't read um, now my confidence is at a place where I tell people it's not that I can't read or I don't read it's that that the publishing world hasn't done a good enough job at creating a book that holds my attention. It's not me. I'm awesome. It, it's the world, right? So when, when I'm looking at a, a textbook, I know enough about myself now that um, I don't, I don't need to read the whole chapter. I go to the summary and I can get what I need from the summary. If there's something that I don't understand in the summary, then I'll go back and read that part in the textbook. But part of, of being me is understanding that I want you to tell me what I need to hear. Don't tell me what you think I need to know. I don't need the fluff, right? Just tell me what I need to know. That's it. Just cut the rest of the bullshit, get right to the point. And that's, that's where I need to be. So that's one of the hacks that I use. Another is that, you know, when, when learning something new, um, a new skill set, there's this misperception that we have difficulty maintaining our focus. Re the reality is that we focus on everything. The, the challenge is how do we focus on the one thing that somebody else wants us to focus on? Um, and so when I'm learning a new skill, and, and as I mentioned, for me, it's watching videos, I will set the rate of speed at 1.5 or two, because our brains actually work quicker, not slower. So slowing things down doesn't help. But if we speed them up, then that will actually kind of sync up more with what it is we're trying to do. And then again, similarly to the, the textbook, and the summary and going back, if there's a part of the video that I, I feel like, okay, I need to slow this down so I can um, really take my time with it, then I'll slow it down to the, the regular speed for that particular part and then speed it up again. Uh, another hack that I use is that I always have three documents up. 
So I, I'll, I'll have like a report that I need to write for a client. I'll have, uh, or maybe even two reports or a project or a proposal. And then I have a third document for when I'm writing something. If I have something like really neat that I, I came up with that I want to capture, I'll copy and paste that and put it into a document that'll eventually be a quote or be part of a, a book. Mm -hmm. I also use two screens, minimal, so that I, I can move things back and forth. That's another big one. And I think I, I, some of them, it's like, for me, I would call it like productivity acts. Like, like the, the, the speed of the video, it's, it's really the, the, the way that you manage it in your time. That comes with some questions. Can you share some of your daily habits or routines that you have? I, please. So for, first, first thing for me when I get up is I make my bed. And my, my rationale for making my bed is that the rest of the room can be messy, but if you make your bed, then it looks at like at least 60 to 75% of your room is clean, right? So that's, that's for me, it's kind of the psychology behind it. Every time I walk by my room and I see my bed not made, it makes my room look messy. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I kind of have this mentality of cluttered space, cluttered mind. So I need my workspace to be relatively uncluttered. Completely what I do I need to lay everything out um, uh, so you know getting my kids up uh, having a shower and getting dressed for the day uh, I find that when I don't shower first thing and, and get dressed I kind of feel like I'm sleepwalking through my day so that's another important thing for me um, but I think you know there are a lot of hang-ups that people have when working that I've kind of shed like because I know that there are certain things that I can do in an hour that it might take somebody else a week or even a month to do at the mm. same quality or level like I, I don't feel tethered to my desk or my chair. So if I have an opportunity to go out for lunch or go for a beer with a, a friend, um, then I'll, I'll go and do that, you know, and that, and that still is kind of work for me, right? It's not, I, I think that in what we do, you're never not working. It's, it's not a thing that you do. It's a way of being. So it's, it's easy to treat everything that I do as work. So again, I don't feel like I have to sit here and be at my desk from nine to five because that's how somebody else uh, views how somebody should work or operate uh, by keeping tabs on them. Um, you know, it allows me the, the freedom to do a lot of different things and, and be okay with, you know, maybe being more productive in, in one day and maybe not the rest of the afternoon and, and then kind of going back and forth. Man, I love it. And, and I love the idea of um, like the working, you are always working on you or in your relations, you know, you are a mm -hmm. uh, old being. I love that. It's not like the, the five to nine job. It's not that just period, that period. You are always working on you. I love that. And let's go in the, again, in the COVID, some of the lessons that you are taking uh, from this situation? Oh, well, unfortunately that our academic system is not set up for people who, who need it. Um, that's, that's one of the, the biggest challenges that I have, as, you know, as a parent and also like as, as a, an advocate for students in the education system is that a lot of neurodiverse students weren't getting the support or technology that they needed before COVID. Um, so they're, you know, they still have the need for that help. Uh, technology has increased. Our government put out a, a subsidy to help people who couldn't afford computers to, to get a laptop. So that was great. 
but there are specialized software programs that some of these students need on their, their laptops uh, in order to be able to, to be on uh, a similar level playing field as their peers in order to get the grade. So it's well and good to have the, the computers, I applaud them for that. But if the, if the student doesn't have the technology that they need, that computer becomes an, an overpriced paperweight. Exactly, exactly. So this in personally speaking, some lesson that you, you are taking. Um, I've learned a lot about patience uh, with my kids being home and my wife and I both working from home um, be, being, you know, extra patient and, and understanding that, you know, we're going through stuff, but our kids are also going through stuff. Right. And, and so really trying to understand what it, what it's like for them. And, you know, my kids are, you know, elementary and middle school. So, you know, they, they have friends, but the, the whole concept of talking and speaking on the phone is not something that, you know, it's not like what we encountered when, you know, the telephone was really the only mode of communication other than writing a letter or, or um, you know, sending a postcard. Mm -hmm. Now there, there are many ways to chat and communicate and message through different social media platforms. So really kind of being mindful of uh, screen time, how much of it is spent playing games, how much of it is um, educational, you know, how much it is educationally related, but also then, um, you know, looking at how they're communicating with their friends, because that's also important. Mm. Love it, exactly. And yeah, it's very important in, 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 in the society that you are, yeah, taking care of the time that you, like, we are, I see ourselves as a pizza, so we should, we should slice ourselves, like spending time with the, the family, spending time with the social media, like trying to balance that, I think it's it's quite important. Uh, one question that I like to ask to my guests: What is your definition of success? Uh, um, it's different now than it used to be. I, I used to think of success as you know how much money was in someone's bank. Now my measurement of success is how well I sleep at night. <laughs> Because when you when you have a, a clean conscience, when 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 you know that you you have done exceptional work, and you feel really good about yourself, you will sleep solid. I love it, I love it. and I share I share the, with you that thought, man. If you can sleep, if you can put your your head in the pillow at the end of the night and just sleep without thinking, I think it's it's marvelous. It's amazing. Uh, legacy. Let's talk a little bit about legacy. What is the legacy that you want to leave behind? <sighs> you know, I, I, I don't know, man. I really don't know. My, you know, I, th I think a, a legacy is something that other people determine once you're gone. Um, you know, what, what I'd like to be remembered for as somebody who, who helped and, and really that's, that's it. You know, I'd rather be, be remembered as the person who tried than uh, somebody else who gave up. Hmm. You know, some somebody who was who was there when things were hard, and and that's something that I you know I get a lot from families. Like, a, a lot of families have gone to somebody else, or in, in many cases, other counselors. And and one of them described the situation in such a way that, you know, if you're in a, a mansion, you have this big ring with like hundreds of keys. 
um, mm. and you go to all the rooms and none of them work. And then you, you try that last room and it works. And you mm -hmm. wonder like why and how could you have wasted all your time and energy trying all those other doors. But it also makes the, the fact that you found that last one that worked so much more rewarding. Exactly. Exactly. After the journey, the hero's journey, you find like your light at the end of the tunnel. Exactly. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. Now I want to talk if you have uh, some projects uh, that you want to share with me and the listeners and viewers. Sure. Um, so one, one project I'm involved with right now that's, that's fascinating to me um, is the Include project or Include program through the uh, University of Connecticut's Environmental and Civil Engineering program. And so I was um, contacted to participate in the project as a guest lecturer uh, and consultant. And to me, this is a very innovative project where they're actually looking to recruit and retain neurodiverse students for their engineering programs. Uh, to my knowledge, this is the first uh, project of this kind where they're looking at the, the disability label as uh, a form of giftedness rather than uh, than the typical model of looking at perceived deficits. Mm -hmm. So looking at the, the gifts that neurodiverse students have, and then how do we, how can we incorporate this in their education and learning to enhance their experience at the university? So it really is a very cool innovative project that I, I hope will become the, the kind of the, the gold standard for other universities around the world to kind of follow and build on. I love it. Um... I don't know if you want to share something more about uh, the company. Don't uh, don't miss my ability. If you want to share, what kind of work the somebody can expect? Sure. So I, because I have a unique understanding of how my thought process works. As I mentioned, I can't do the same thing all day every day. I get bored and I get resentful. So I intentionally chunk up my my schedule, my work week, so that some of it is spent um, with counseling and psychotherapy. And so I'm, I'm a parenting expert. A lot of the work that I do is with parents to help provide insight into their child's thought process, not to excuse behavior, but to help them understand where it can be coming from and how um, different factors may be contributing to what they're going through. Um, and, you know, for neurodiverse people, we thrive on three things, structure, consistency, and routine. And it's kind of like a, a tripod, right? When, when you kick one of those legs out, the other two come crashing down. So trying to work with them to establish what structure, consistency, and routine looks like in their house from everything to meal planning to trying to develop natural consequences for kids when they do misbehave. So it's not punitive, it's natural. So an example of that would be if, um, you know, a, a child acts up and you're on your way out the door and the parent says, you know what, you're, I'm going to take away your Xbox because you're acting this way. Hmm. The Xbox has nothing to do with the situation. Right now, if they're on their way to a birthday party for that kid's friend, then maybe the harsh reality is that because of their behavior, they don't get to go to the party. Hmm. That, that makes sense. It's this is where we're supposed to go, but because of your behavior, if, if you're not acting socially acceptable in the home, it's not a big stretch to me, for me to think that you're going to act inappropriately outside of the home. So hmm. why would I as a parent provide that opportunity for you? So, but again, it's, it's about teaching the kids that th this isn't me giving you a consequence. This is you choosing it, right? So it's about predicting what the natural consequence would be to the mm -hmm. kids. And then you say, it's, 
I can't make that decision for you. All I can tell you is that if this happens, this is what the consequence is. And, and we all know this, so that if you go that route, it's not me taking the party away, it's you choosing not to go. And so that's the work that I do with, with parents, with the kids, it's exploring their interests and passions to try and determine if it's a unique gift or hobby, and then try to take it as far as we can. Um, my work with uh, consulting, um, de depends on the, the business and what I get asked to do. It could be anything from the world of animation to uh, a nonprofit. Um, and then I also get paid to speak on a lot of different topics, um, you know, typically neurodiversity or mental health related. Um, and, you know, speaking at different conferences and also being uh, kind of a media personality, um, doing interviews. So I've probably got close to 40 interviews now under my belt. Um, yeah, so I do a lot of different things. Man, love it, love it. And I want to, to ask you a question from the beginning of the interview. What you can say that I'm not saying? What can I say that you're not saying? About my business? Uh, I, I wanted to, to in general, I don't know, like, uh, I want to ask you because it's something that uh, uh, you were saying that you can read the people, you like to read the people. And after one hour and 10, I want to see if, you, <laughs> if there is something that you can read under the lines. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, just, maybe, you know, I can, I can tell that you're a genuine, authentic person who, who is fascinated by personal development and and wants to connect with a lot of uniquely gifted individuals to gain their perspectives so that it may eventually help with some some of your own personal self-growth and that you can share with viewers that may also help them with their personal self-growth it's more that I, that's what i was expecting uh tell me what is the best way if somebody wants to contact you what what is uh, the best way for the people to contact you sure uh well the best way to get in touch with me would probably be through um uh, well, you, you can do a Google search for don't diss my ability and I should be the first one that that comes up. Um, I like to tell people the only way you can't find me is if you live under a rock somewhere. I mean, I, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, I'm on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, if you can't find me, there's a bigger issue at hand. I will put after in the description of the video. Sure. Uh, uh, tell me, uh, what is your advice to make the world a better place? Oh man, uh, treat people the way you want to be treated. I mean, I think do on others as you would have them do on to you. I, I think that uh, a little bit of kindness goes a, a long way. Um, and I, I mean, I think that for a lot of us, we spend a lot of our lives trying to fit in to be someone that we're not, to fit into a certain group that we, we think has it all. The reality is um, the people who don't talk about their struggles are the people I worry the most about. Um, you know, and, and I also think that I know that I add value to the relationships and conversations that I have. Um, but one of my unique gifts is that, again, like I, I'm an empath, so I sense and feel the world more deeply than others. Hmm. And so one of my gifts is that I intrinsically know what people want before they may even recognize that they want it themselves which makes me an incredible gift giver. Um, but I, like I mentioned, I'm an amateur chef and chocolatier. So 
again, when I go to do a presentation in person, you know, I'll ask if anybody has any allergies and then I'll make um, truffles or, um, you know, but, and I go deep into the process, man. Like I buy high end dark chocolate. I'll shave it down by hand. I learned how to temper chocolate, which is a process within itself. Um, and I'll make like cherry chocolates. I'll make, you know, chocolate covered caramels and put sea salt on them. Like I go, I go deep into it because again, understanding how my thought process works when I get stuck on something, something else like cooking, where I know that there's no, there's no margin for error. If I screw up, it's ruined. So hmm. I need to focus my, all of my attention um, and physical and emotional energy into that task. And when I'm done and it's complete, I can then go back to what it was that I was having challenges with and look at it from a completely different perspective. And so again, this is for me, this is the, the selfish part, but the selflessness is that this stuff that I make is not for me. This is for other people. And so this is also what I do for the holidays. I don't buy Christmas gifts. I make them. So I, you know, people don't really do this anymore. So I make homemade chocolates and candy and, and this is what I give to people for the holidays is their present. It's much more special than just going to a store. Well, it's something from me, right? It's something I made. You can't get this anywhere else, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I love the idea. And you were talking about focus. Uh, how, how do you think that you can work on that? If you can give advice, like working a hobby like you are doing? So a, a big part for me is is that and, and it's kind of, it's, it's different for everybody. It's kind of finding out what the, the motivating factor is for people and, and how to help them switch gears. So for me, I've kind of turned it into a, a game. Like if I'm trying to reply to an email and I'm standing there and it's taking me longer than a minute to type out what I need to type, it's probably not the right time. Um, and when I'm working on say a, a report, I'll set a timer for 15 minutes and then I kind of race the clock to see how much what I can get done in 15 minutes. Uh, I might repeat that that 15 minutes so that it's a half hour. If I'm, if I'm almost done, it's rare. I might do it a third time, but typically what I would do is I would switch gears, start a different project, set a timer for 15 minutes and just keep doing that to see how much I can get done. And I find that that's when I am at my most productive. Man, I love now, it. That you have to get in the mindset to be there. And I find like now coming off the, the holiday break, um, transitions are hard for neurodiverse people. So it's, it takes me a while to get back to that, that point, but I know that it's going to come. It's just going to take me a little bit longer. So again, it's understanding those, those ups and downs, right? Is that, okay. So if that's a bit of a down, I know it's going to come back up. So I don't get impatient with myself. I don't get frustrated with myself. I don't get down on myself. I just know that this is part of the process and, and things will get back to the way they were. <laughs> and I feel, yeah, I feel like, it's a lot of self-awareness in you, you know, like you really know you, you know, you really know. I, I do. Well, and that's why I say it's, you know, it's important to know who you are, but also very important to know who you're not, you know, and, and to that point, <laughs> you know, it's similar, but different. When I won my, uh, my national award, I, I made a point to thank everybody who helped me along the way. But more importantly, uh, I made a point to thank those who didn't help me because it, it's the people who didn't help me who helped propel me to where I am and helped me to develop, develop the resiliency and without them realizing it, you're being an asshole actually helped me. So thank you. I love it. And yeah, being, man, having that kind of empathy, like for the ones that didn't help you for the haters, let's call it, just put it in a name. I don't want to. And I love it the way that you manage your time, man. I love it. If, 
if I already see that you use a lot your your uh, calendar, and also you use the timers. Do you want mm -hmm. to give uh, me and and the listeners and viewers some hacks uh, to make to to being more productive by managing your time? I don't have any. Like I I've looked for them, but again, you know, I, I got really drawn into trying to find the right app, but. I didn't find everything that did everything that I wanted to do. So for me, it was about piecing together the tools that I was already using hmm. and just kind of being okay with accepting that this is how things are instead of spending all that time and energy trying to find something that didn't exist specifically for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I, to me, I, you know, I found that to be a, a huge waste of time and energy. Um, so really, you know, iCal using Apple products, uh, all my devices are synced together. Uh, another strategy that I have that helps people with relationships that I, I work with parents on is the idea of using your calendar for more than one thing. So um, for my calendar, I have my personal stuff on there, but I also have my business stuff on there. And so when we're looking at organizing things from a, a family perspective, the things that, so the, my personal calendar is red, my wife's mm. is purple, anything for the family is green. Um, my work stuff is in black. So my work stuff, because it's confidential, my, that's not a calendar I share with my wife. But the, the three that we do share are my. When one puts something in, the other gets a notification. And so there's, we don't really run into um, conflicts and scheduling because we're that organized with our, what we're doing independently, but also with our family. Man, I love it. I love the idea, man. I really, really, man, I'm taking that one to me. I love it. And I, I can take it, I can take it a, a bit further. So Please? for the stuff that I do, like for, um, um, for our government that I get referrals from, mm -hmm. um, their child and family services. So in my calendar, they're orange. It, for a, a different uh, referral source, they're brown. For another one, it's blue. So these all help me with scheduling, but also billing. So when I'm going to go back to look at my hours, I look at the hours that are color coded for that particular group to do my invoicing and billing. So I don't have to distinguish between all the different things that I have. It's easily visible for, for me to just take and then roll over. Love it, love it. I think it's easier. And <clears throat> that one of sharing uh, the schedule with your partner, it's the colors i think it helps and i will take this one and sharing the schedule with your partner i think it's something that will i love it uh i want i like also to ask to to my guests uh some books or podcasts that you want to advise me or that you like in general sure um oh, i have to think about this so um Scared Speechless is one that I recommend for people who have a fear of public speaking. And uh, one of the reasons why, I, so the person who wrote it, uh, well, there are two authors, but one of them is, uh, his name is Steve Rohr. And uh, he was my advisor for a while. And he's a publicist. At one time, he was the show publicist for the Oscars. And he found me, me through Twitter. And so he would, uh, and so again, when I, when I talk about the low risk maximum reward. So when he started following me on Twitter and, and progressively retweeting and liking more of my stuff, mm. um, I, I just, I took a long shot and I sent him a message. Hey man, thank you for, for following me and sharing all of my stuff. Would you be interested in having a Skype call? And he mm -hmm. said, yes. And so I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. 
And so if you actually go to my website under my testimonials, there's a testimonial from Steve there. Um, but he helped me prepare for, for different interviews. Like he's a master at public speaking. Like it's just incredible. So he sent me an autographed copy of his book. And I just, as I was going through it, even though like I, I love public speaking now, I didn't always feel that way. So it was really interesting for me to kind of read the psychology behind why, why we as uh, a species um, mm. have a fear typically of, about public speaking. So that was a really good one. Uh, the other one is not a book, but it's a resource that I highly recommend. And it's a website called differentbrains.org. And when I first started making these shitty little YouTube videos in my basement, uh, the founder of Different Brains, Dr. Hacky Reitman, found me and uh, sent me a, a syndication agreement to become a content provider, a blogger and a vlogger. Mm. And so it didn't pay anything, but it provided exposure into a new market that I otherwise wouldn't have uh, access to. And so that really helped to kind of grow my brand and, and solidify what I was doing. So that's a resource. And so what I really love about Different Brains is that <coughs> excuse me, he has created a, a network of uniquely gifted individuals who share their success stories and mm -hmm. the lessons that they've learned. And, you know, I'm very proud to say that I think I was, you know, probably one of the first five or 10 contributors and now they're probably into the hundreds. Um, so it really is about people sharing their, their success stories. There are stories from parents. There are stories from uh, service providers kind of, you know, sharing the unique work that they do with uh, neurodiverse individuals. Uh, but it really is a positive space and community for neurodiverse people and neurodiverse families. I love it. Let's, if you still have time, about public speaking. Some, some tips uh, that for somebody that is starting in the, in the public speaking. That sure. Get out and do it. No, I mean, everybody wants to be a paid speaker, but the reality is it doesn't work that way. Um, you have to hone your craft. You have to hone your message. Um, and, and you've, you, you know, I don't, I don't want anybody to get booed, but you also sometimes need to have the experience of, you know, instead of hearing the applause, you hear crickets because people don't really maybe know what to think of what it is you're trying to say. So it, it takes stepping out and doing a lot of free talks and connecting with people to hone your message and, and to, I mean, in, in order to become a paid speaker, you have to establish yourself as an expert in a, in a mm -hmm. particular field. If you haven't done that, then you, you're trying to skip every step in order to get to some place where you probably have no business being. So again, you've got to do that work and build up that body of work until you can get to a point where you're there, right? Things don't just happen. We make them happen. And if you're not actively trying to make something happen, then in essence, you are actively trying not to make something happen. Right. So it, it just, it takes a lot of, you know, and I've done a lot of free talks. It's just when you're starting out that that's just what happens. But as you develop yourself as a speaker, as more people hear you, you know, and, and one of my, uh, one of my other entrepreneurial friends told me this, when you are undeniably the best at what you do, hmm. you don't have to find people, they will find you. Hmm. So focus on being, the best that you can be, the rest of the shit will take care of itself. But you need to focus on being the best you you can be, be the best expert in that field that you can be, and then things will just happen. You you won't have to make them happen, right? So let's get to that. But I can tell you from my experience, man, it's, it's a long journey. And I had somebody reach out to me not that long ago who said, you know, hey, Sean, can you give me some advice on how to become a, a paid speaker? It's like, 
establish establish yourself as uh, an expert in your field. Have you done this? No. Okay, then it's 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 kind of like the game Candyland. You know, you, you pull out these different cards. Sometimes they move you forward. Sometimes they move you all the way back to the start of the board. And that's what it was like for this person. Like, you think that you're here, but you're really, really back here. Like, you know, in order for me to get the 40 interviews that I've done, you know, part of it was that me having to hustle and connect with people to make them happen. And then I got to a point where somebody has heard one of those interviews and now they contact me just like you did, right? Exactly. So, and, and then also it's about finding the, the right fit because, you know, I had to check out you know, I had to kind of vet you, right? Because I know that if you weren't at a point where, because I've had people contact me for podcasts before and they were just getting started. And I said, no, like if, if I look at what the person's doing, if, if, if it's not where I'm at or where I want to be, then exactly. there's of no value to me to do it exactly. other than the learning experience for that person. And, and I don't need to give them that. Somebody else who's just getting started can give them that. So it, it's also about finding the right fit. But I think early on, you know, you kind of compromise some of those maybe core values and, and beliefs to get your message out there. And then as you recognize and realize who you are, and also sometimes more importantly, who you're not, you, you then can um, start to, to choose which opportunities are, are going to be positive ones for you. And, and one of the, when you talk about mindset, you know, one of the things that I ask myself is constantly is how does this move me forward? Right. Any, anytime a new opportunity or, or something comes up, the question I always ask myself is how does this move me forward? And if the answer is it doesn't as tempting as it may be, it's not for me. So that's one of the ways that I really try to maintain my focus is by asking myself certain key questions like that one. How does this move me forward? What do I get out of this? And it doesn't always have to be money. You know, it, it rarely is. But if I don't feel like the, it's it's something that I believe in or I want to progress in, then I have other stuff that I can be doing that helps to get me there. There's a pile of it actually uh, that I need to get to. So, you know, but part of it is again, in engaging with people, like people with ADHD have an ongoing dialogue in their head. And I'll tell people, if you want my attention, then what you're saying needs to be more interesting than the dialogue that's happening in my head. Like if you want my attention, if you want me to remember who you are, you need to be memorable, right? For people who are just starting out, they're not at that point yet. So it's, it's you know, and I don't mind helping people in a way like to share with them what I'm sharing with you, mm -hmm. right? No, nobody, nobody just becomes a speaker. You, you have to work your way to get there. And, but if you're not willing to do that work, nobody else is going to do it for you, right? Like the minute you stop hustling, everything stops. Exactly. You have to do the journey. I completely agree with you. So, yeah, you don't fall in the candy land. You have to, to go the, you have to, to do the journey. You have to go to from point B to, to from point A to point B. I completely agree with you. And that you, yep. that you'll turn you're you building, you're building on something. It's, it's, you know, pe people want the finished product. You have to build it. You have, you have, it's reverse engineering. You have to look at where you want to be and you have to try and create a path to get there. Now, most people now you're you're in Europe. Are you familiar with the prices right? The show the prices right? No. Okay, so me, please. Sure. So the, the prices right is it's a pricing game and there's a lot of different games on the game show. And so when most people think of their uh, their trajectory for where they they get, they think of it as this linear line. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell people like that I love your idea, it's great, but that's not what you're going to do and that's not how you're going to get there. It just can't, right? It's it's an idea. 
the reality will turn out to be different than the idea. It doesn't mean it's going to be worse. It can actually be better. But a, a Plinko board is you have this big giant circle that you drop and there's all these pegs on a board and at the bottom, there's different um, dollar amounts. And so there's one for $10,000 beside that on each side, there's zero. Okay. And then it can be a thousand dollars, $500, $50. And so you go, you stand up here and you drop this thing down. You don't know where it's going to go and you don't know where it's going to land. Right. And, and that's kind of how I think people need to think of where it is that they're going, because if you don't understand that there are going to be a lot of bumps in the road, the, the resilience piece is going to be the piece that's missing because they're not going to have it. If you don't, if, yeah, if you don't know your why, you don't, you don't have a reason to be resilient. You know, if you don't know your why, I, I totally agree with you. And after it's, it's like, like you was, like you were saying, you, you reverse the puzzle. You start from the, the big picture and you go to the little weekly habits or daily habits as you want it. I love it. I love it, Sean. Any last advice or tips or thoughts that you want to share with me and the listeners, please? Just be, just be you. I mean, that, I think that, um, you know, again, one of my gifts in being able to read people is that, you know, we, we spend so much of our time trying to get people to fit into our world that we rarely explore how we can fit into theirs. And that's kind of part of the, the, the secret of my success is being able to relate with people in a way that no one else has really tried to do um, and, and kind of exploring what their passions and interests are and using that as the, the context for communication and learning. Um, you know, if, if someone is interested in something specific in particular and you talk about anything but that, you don't have their attention, right? So if you're looking to make an impact it, it means that you need to be yourself, but you also have to allow that person to be themselves and, and find a way to work together that is going to help the person become the person they aspire to be. You know, a, a lot of my work is on trying to help these kids explore their passions and to try and figure out, is it a gift or is it a hobby? Um, for a lot of these kids, they are uniquely gifted. But again, the challenge is that the people who are closest to them who, you know, have seen this and, and experienced it just becomes a, a quirk or a thing that they do, but in a different context and situation, um, this particular asset can be extremely valuable to the right company. Uh, and so when I approach employer, an employer about a particular individual, um, my mindset is, is different than the charity-based mindset, which is you should hire a person with a disability because it's the right thing to do. That's actually the wrong thing to do, uh, especially as an entrepreneur. Um, I would never ask somebody to do that. Now, when I can assess somebody's unique uh, gift and see their potential, then I will go to a business and say, this person is either going to make you money or they're going to save you money. And that is the rationale for hiring an individual with a disability label. It's what is, what is your value proposition? What is it that you have that you can bring to this company that is going to change the way that they do things and change their perspective around um, neurodiverse people because of the immaculate work that you can do that no one else there can even come close to touching you. So it's, it's really about, it, it's not about saying what you can do. Anybody can say anything, especially in, in, you know, this world of fake news and everything that's happening. You can say shit and it's not going to matter. Uh, your word is not worth 
anything anymore, really. So it's about what you can produce. So don't tell me what you can do. Show me, right? And, and you know, my, my friend who encouraged me to get in the startup community, uh, he owns an animation studio, and he would say, I don't care if you went to Harvard, community college, or flunked out at grade one. If you can't produce, you won't work. And that's the bottom line. So, you know, even though a job may require uh, a PhD in computer science, if I have a 18-year-old kid who can come in and work circles around this guy with his PhD, uh, maybe you need to change the way that you do things. Why not? Exactly, man. Exactly. And, like, it's something that you put, that you say a lot, like, distinguish the gifts from the hobbies. How you do yeah. that? Just wind up. Uh, I don't took you more time, my friend. Thank you. That's right. It's really by, by tapping into my network and, and finding people who, um, you know, for whom that is their, their area of specialization, who, who can really assess and determine um, if it is a gift or if it's a hobby. And either way, you know, what support would they need to help them take it further? Um, and, and really, it's, it's kind of like career development on, on steroids. Like one example that I'll give you is, you know, and, and a gift isn't always that evident. Like I have a, another young man that I was working with who, um, you know, he's, he's autistic. Uh, he's, a, he's a complex case. Um, you know, our government spends a lot of money uh, every year for this individual to be in like a specialized group home. And, um, you know, might be in school for an hour a day, uh, a few days a week. Um, and when I started working with his mom, I asked, you know, what is And I said that he likes to draw. I said, I said, okay, bring me some pictures. I would really love to see. And so I saw him and I thought, okay, you know, he, he's in high school, but these pictures are more kind of elementary age level. Mm -hmm. uh, he's infatuated with big trucks, anything with big wheels he loves. And so mom brought me in the pictures. And then again, I try to think of who in my network can I contact. And so when I was in the, um, social entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurial accelerator. Um, one of the other businesses was a publishing company and he also identifies as being neurodiverse. And so in that particular accelerator, there were, um, eight businesses, but everybody else besides he and I had a team. They had two, three, four people. He and I were the only solo entrepreneurs. So we worked very closely together. So I developed a relationship with him. And so I, I called him up and I said, Hey man, this could be something, could be nothing. And he said, let's set up a meeting. And so now this like long story short, this young man is become a, going to become a published author. And the, the publishing company has a contract with our, our health authority where new parents, when they leave the hospital, new moms, they get a package, like a care package. And in that care package, there's three books. This kid's book is going to be one of the three. So again, you know, here's a, a kid who might be in school for an hour a day, a couple of days a week, but yet he's going to be a published author. So the gifts aren't always that evident. Sometimes it's how do we take, how do we take it and help that person turn it into something more than they thought it could ever be. And how do you feel after that, man, after helping somebody in the journey? Oh man. Well, I like, I'm, I'm about 300 pounds, but I feel light as a feather, <laughs> you know, like I, it, it is, uh, again, like I sleep very well at night, right? Like when, when you put out positive energy into the world, it, it will come back, right? You just, you can't count on it. You can't bank on it. It's like the example I told you about holding the door open and waiting for that. Thank you. We're doing it for the right reasons, right? When you put positive energy out, 
without the expectation um, that it's going to come back or the, you know, another word that I, I guess, uh, you know, when people feel entitled, they feel entitled to that thank you. Mm -hmm. it, it's never going to come. So when I think for me, when, when you give up on trying to do something that is inherently good because you expect a reward at the end mm -hmm. and, and you realize that that reward is your own personal self growth, then the other things will start to come. But it's only when you kind of shed that mentality or that mindset of doing something for something instead of doing something for nothing that the, the other stuff will just start to come back in, in, in amazing ways. You, you could never plan it. You can never map it out. It just does. But you have to have enough belief in yourself that you'll get there. I love it. I love it. And, and it's exactly like... That's that expectation that sometimes we create when we are opening that door, it will just create more resentment towards you and towards the other person. Yeah, like, and how, how do you think that we can lower our expectations or even if it's possible, disappear? Just erase them. It, it's the experience. I think again, going back to the resilience piece, it's it's putting yourself in situations where, you know, for for me in particular, um, having moved to different places where, you know, as a white male, um, I might be in, in the majority of a population somewhere, but having lived in places where I was a minority, which you know, you know, I I think it comes back to being humbled, honestly. Uh, so another one of again core values: being humbled develops resiliency, but you can you can go through a resilient situation but not have the the foresight and the, and the vulnerability to feel humbled by it afterwards and, and if you don't then that that's a, a dangerous path um because it will lead to you know people being conceited cocky uh narcissistic tendencies or, or traits um you know which i think people think in in the entrepreneurial world are assets when indeed they're not so I, I think that you, you have to have been in a situation where you feel humbled and you've been able to grow from that personally. I have the experience of being humbled more times than I can count and in ways that I didn't even know I was being humbled um, until much later in life when I was able to reflect and look back and, and see again how all these, you know, kind of death of a thousand cuts were created uh, traumatizing in my head, you know, when I was to reflect and look at what I, what, how I was humbled and what I was able to take away from those to grow personally, mm. helped me become resilient and who I am today. I love it. Sean, thank you so much, man. I want to wish you, man, it, it was a big lesson and I will, when I will edit this interview, I think I will can, uh, I will for sure digest it better. Thank you so much. One sure. more time for no having the time. Uh, I love it. Guys, don't forget to go to Sean Instagram. Give him a shout out. And love to everyone everywhere. Thank you so much, Sean. Awesome.